Welcome to the Cultivating Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Schultz. Before we begin our episode today, I'd like to make a quick announcement about some of our previous episodes, um, specifically related to our uh, leadership summits. Um, I was informed that I goofed up in how the episodes were labeled. Uh, Episodes 13 and 15 uh, descriptions were uh, reversed. Um, Episode 13 was the uh, breakout session that uh, Dr. Terry Tiemann did. Episode 15 was the plenary session. Um, So those have been corrected. I believe the changes uh, will be reflected on um, iTunes and Google Play, and they're already reflected on our website. Uh, The audio is still going to mention the wrong um, topic, but just so you're aware that those um, descriptions were wrong um, as I recorded them. So that uh, said, today I'm going to be sharing with you a presentation that uh, Reverend Fred Hintz, our public policy advocate, did at a uh, recent Winkle. And it's a presentation based on uh, the ruling that happened last summer of Trinity Lutheran Church and LCMS Church in Columbia, Missouri. Um, They applied for some uh, state funding, a grant uh, specifically aimed at improving uh, playground safety. Um, using uh, crushed up rubber tires um, as padding instead of uh, you know gravel P-Rock sort of thing. And um, the state denied that um, that grant application based on it being a religious institution. So it went all the way up to the US Supreme Court who ruled last summer that um, such a uh, discrimination based on religion is a violation of the First Amendment. Um, And so Fred has uh, developed this presentation uh, based on this to help uh, folks in our congregations and our pastors and leaders understand um, the implications of it. I think there's still a lot more um, that that can happen, um, even in our state, and uh, and, and Reverend Hintz definitely would agree uh, in terms of education funding. But it's good to be aware of, of these big kind of watershed moments in um, our judicial system, because they do have impacts on our life and ministry here. So this presentation uh, goes about an hour twenty minutes. Um, hopefully, you find it to be informative. Um, there's a video accompanying this of the presentation on our website that you can watch if you want to see the PowerPoint slides that went along with it. Otherwise, you can just listen to uh, Reverend Hintz's presentation now. Well, I think we'll go ahead and uh, get started. Um, I um, Obviously, we are uh, recording this. Um, the presentation, the primary presentation that I want to give you is one that uh, I think uh, needs to be heard by uh, a wide variety of folks not just uh, clergy, but uh, laity as well. And so hopefully by getting this recorded uh, and on our website and distributed however, you know, whatever other means, uh, we can get this word out. And I, uh, I hope after we're finished, you'll uh, understand why uh, I think it merits that kind of, um, that kind of distribution. Um, so uh, first of all, thanks for having me here. Tim, thank you for the invitation. Um, I've met all of you now, but uh, just in case, uh, you know, I'm 
Fred Hintz, uh, formerly pastor at um, Emmanuel Lutheran Church and School in Gaylord, still live in Gaylord, uh, have been on the district staff for, uh, well, beginning my fifth year now. Um, my, my role changed uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Um, for the first four years or so, or three and a half years, uh, I served as one of the, the um, assistants to President Natasty, and in that regard had two primary roles. One was to uh, act as a, a mission formation uh, coordinator, essentially a consultant primarily to rural and small town congregations, uh, primarily in the uh, southwest and, and uh, southeast corner of our uh, of our district. Uh, but I also served as the, the public policy advocate um, at that time. Uh, about a year ago, um, I gave up the uh, mission formation portion uh, and took on a, a part-time status, which isn't really very part-time at all, but, um, but it allows me to focus uh, almost entirely then on uh, pu these public policy matters. And uh, I think most of you are aware, maybe not, that uh, I still am kind of a, a unique duck in the um, LCMS world. When I uh, speak and, and tell people I am your public policy advocate, typically people's eyes kind of glaze over, and that's true for, you know, whether it's pastor or, or laity, because they've never heard of such a thing, uh, because there has never been such a thing uh, until uh, President Natasty and, and the board of directors decided to bring it into being uh, a little over four years ago. Um, so, uh, because there, there is no other type of person like this, uh, it, it has meant that we've kind of uh, stepped into this or stumbled through this or however you want to look at it um, without any uh, how-to manual. Uh, I think most of you know, particularly older folks, but uh, I think all of us understand that uh, LCMS has always been very cautious about uh, the, the church body itself as an institution uh, engaging with in political matters. Um, we, we have come up to that line in the past primarily on the life issues, uh, but we, we've really not gone any further than that. Things have changed so dramatically in the, the culture around us that that kind of a, a um, that kind of an implement, implementation of our two kingdoms theory you know, where we essentially, uh, uh, we preach to our people and then our people as individuals engage with the government, engage with the culture in general. Um, that, while that worked very well, I think, for the first 150 years that LCMS was in this country at least, uh, because of the changes in the, the, the structure of the culture, uh, it doesn't work very well anymore. And so, uh, the decision was made that we need to add uh, a, a more direct institutional um, engagement. And that's where I come in and these kinds of uh, presentations come in. So um, before I get into the presentation itself, there are uh, a couple of things that I want to uh, cover with you. Uh, Probably six weeks ago, uh, Billy and I put out another uh, 
issue uh, of our um, With One Voice for Public Policy uh, e-newsmail. And was it about a month and a half ago? Maybe at least that. Um, in, in that email, uh, I said that I was actually fairly optimistic, uh, or at least in relative terms, uh, because uh, there's some things going on that have not happened before, uh, at least not in our lifetime. Uh, and two, those two things uh, are, first of all, we are on the cusp. Well, we have already received some, some major positive um, news from the courts. And it's been a long time since we've been able to say that. But uh, the, the court system has given us some rulings, and we're anticipating uh, several more very positive rulings, if the prognosticators are correct. Um, this June uh, should be, uh, I hope, I pray, a time for celebration uh, because of what uh, will be uh, given to us by the courts. There, of course, is the, uh, the Masterpiece Cakes um, case that was argued before the court back in December. Uh, more recently, there was the Janus case, which may not seem like it has a lot to do with us, but it has, uh, has to do with public employee, employee unions, and in particular, teachers' unions, uh, and their ability to wield um, an excessive amount of influence in our culture. Uh, and then more recently, just was it last week or the week before, the, uh, the case that was argued uh, goes under the acronym NIFLA, N-I-F-L-A, versus Becerra, who is the uh, attorney general for California. That was the case about whether the state could force uh, citizens, and in particular pro-life uh, crisis pregnancy centers, whether they could force them to essentially advertise for uh, abortions abortion clinics and so forth. Um, and again, judging from the way the, the arguments went, we anticipate a, a favorable ruling. All that's gonna come, come out probably this June. So um, buckle your seat belts and, and be ready to, to explain to your folks why they, these are such, Lord willing, such positive things. Uh, so that's one reason to be, uh, I would say, on the upbeat side with respect to um, public policy. The, another reason uh, is because in, in the last six months, especially in the last two or three months, there have been some just wonderful um, books being published. Uh, as you well know, the, the, uh, the church is not a, um, a nimble organization. You know, it takes us a while to, to respond to, to changes in, in the, the world around us. Uh, and so we are just now beginning to see uh, Christian thinkers and writers responding to this wave of, of uh, what shall we call them, social novelties, uh, you know, same-sex marriage, um, transgenderism, this kind of thing. And on the table uh, in front of one group anyway, are a number of these books. Uh, the, the big thick one, if uh, Ted, could you hold that up for me? Uh, it's entitled uh, Theistic Evolution. It, it's an imposing thing from a physical point of view, if uh, not 
uh, otherwise. Uh, but it, it really is a, a wonderful uh, resource. And what it does is to call us as the Christian church to, to begin to, to forcefully and confidently challenge those who claim to be part of the, the Christian church, uh, but who nevertheless uh, very boldly and brazenly advocate for uh, Darwinian evolution, uh, which from a scientific point of view, Darwinian evolution is dead. It has absolutely been discredited. Um, anybody who knows the field uh, has long since given up arguing that, uh, that mutations and natural selection you know, could produce what we see around us. Um, and, and, and in fact, those folks who understand that, they're, they're rather desperately trying to concoct some new replacement theory, anything other than to have to give credence to uh, creation. Um, and, and that's the best indicator that, that there is, uh, that they've abandoned what they have, uh, the, the ship that they've been riding for the last 150, 60 years, um, but they have nothing to replace it. Uh, and, and so the, the idea that science itself is giving uh, an, an ever more robust witness to, to the creation, uh, it, it should give us great uh, encouragement and it should give us that confidence that we need to ch challenge those who still advocate this thing called theistic evolution. I'm sure you've heard of it before. It is, it is a complete... Um, uh, oxymoron. You can't truly advocate for evolution because it clearly uh, stipulates that there is no such thing as God uh, and, um, and, and still claim to be part of the church. So at any rate, it, it's a great book. If you have interest in these areas or if you have members who have interest in these areas, uh, it's a great, great one to have. Uh, there are a number of other books there as well. Um, the one that Ted's holding up now called Love Thy Body. That's the most recent one that has come out. And I would advocate strenuously that you buy it and read it. Because it, better than any other resource that I've seen, helps to make sense of all these social innovations that have been coming at us one after another. It, it ties it all together in a way that um, I think is really encouraging for us as Lutherans in particular. Uh, as the, the title indicates, it, there's an emphasis there on the, the bodiliness uh, of, uh, of the Christian message. Uh, what better time than, than Easter? To, to call that to people's attention. Um, you know, we proclaim that not only did, did Christ physically, bodily die, but he physically, bodily rose, okay? And we will physically, bodily rise. Um, we need to regain even greater confidence um, in, in speaking that. Um, and this book will, will help do that. Um, I just, Nancy Piercy, the, the author of this one, uh, she's written several other uh, books over the last 20 years. Perhaps you've read uh, one is Total Truth, and the other one had total in the, the title also. Um, 
But at any rate, it, it's really excellent. She actually has some Lutheran roots, although I'm not sure she would claim them these days. But uh, she writes with great clarity, and uh, I think you would be uh, blessed by, by the uh, investment of uh, time and energy there. Uh, then there are several other books. Uh, one of them called Man Up. Uh, this is a, a new book uh, uh, produced by CPH and, and written by one of our um, fellow pastors, Jeff uh, Hemmer. I think he's from uh, Indiana. Just a wonderful explication of, of um, what a Christian view of masculinity is. Uh, is all about and how important it is not to slide into this uh, cultural, um, the cultural quicksand, which uh, essentially dismisses uh, male and female, masculine and feminine, just totally blurs that and, and expects that there will be no repercussions from that. It, it's really one that... Uh, our church body uh, can, can be proud of. Uh, and so I'd encourage you to read that. Then there's another one uh, right in front of you, Ted, there. Um, when, uh, when Harry became Sally, uh, remember the, the film when Harry met Sally? Well, this is a, a, a focus on transgenderism and, again, the, the incongruities of, of that um, how, how absolutely anti-scientific uh, that is, uh, the idea that, that one can morph from a, a male to a female or, or vice versa. Um, again, well-written, and uh, Ryan Anderson is the, the author there. He's Roman Catholic, but boy, he has produced just some excellent uh, works. He has, uh, several years ago, came out with one called What is Marriage?, um, and he and Sharif Gurgis. Uh, again, it's a wonderful resource for anybody, but especially for Christian pastors, I think. Yes? Just a quick note. Uh, there is a, uh, another book along the same lines of the Man Up one called Ladylike and the Ladies. Yes. Yes. Um, Ladylike. I know my wife has it and has, has read it, and she, uh, she appreciates it. Very good, thanks. Okay, uh, so at any rate, there's, there's really good stuff there, but we, we need to be aware of it and to actually consume it, you know, read it, and, and allow it to, um, to permeate in our, our preaching and teaching. Uh, and above all, it means a, a placing a greater emphasis on uh, the, the first article, on, on the... the uh, physicality of the creation and the recreation you know that we are going to uh, uh, there will be a, a new heaven and a new earth okay uh, so that we don't aren't tempted to spiritualize uh, the, the gospel uh, in a way that's really non-biblical uh, the last book I'll just very briefly uh, mention uh, it's called uh, what is it called again uh, moral Darwinism uh, this is actually quite an old book. It's probably, it's approaching 20 years old, maybe not quite, uh, but it is the best resource I've ever found to, to essentially uh, demonstrate that, that the, uh, the theory of evolution did not come into being 
because of scientific evidence that, that pushed uh, people in that direction. Uh, Darwinian evolution came into being because it was a theological pre-commitment uh, on the part of folks who had to find a way to get rid of God. And until they got rid of God, they were going to lead what they called a disturbed life. Because, of course, they didn't know, or they did know what was going to happen uh, after death. And so uh, it, it sets out just uh, in as clear a, a way as I can imagine uh, the fact that uh, the Darwinian evolution, the, the theory was clearly stated um, two, 300 years before Christ. Um, and the, the reasons that it was proposed were given clearly as well, and that is they were theological. It was then, of course, re resurrected by Darwin um, a couple of thousand years later, or 1,500 years later. So anyway, some, some really positive um, resources for us to, to use. All right, but I'm here uh, primarily to talk about one particular uh, court decision that was reached uh, not quite a year ago, uh, but it's a court decision that has a, a profound impact, has already had a profound impact, and promises to have uh, an even more uh, profound impact in the future. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of assuming that, um, that you heard about this. Uh, it's called the Trinity Lutheran ruling, and it does indeed focus on one of our uh, LCMS congregations. I'll give you more of the details of it uh, a little bit later on. Um, but what what it uh, what it promises uh, is that there will uh, it, that there was going to be a, an entirely new landscape for education in this country, not just parochial education, which of course we have a particular interest in, but all forms of education which right now are pretty much held captive to the secular um, left. Um, and it, it promises, and this is the truly exciting part, new opportunities for us to proclaim the gospel uh, that we haven't had for a long time. So uh, if you know anything at all about the, the Trinity Lutheran case, you probably remember that it has something to do with playgrounds. Everybody kind of, that rings a little bit of a bell. Uh, and, and in fact, it is about playgrounds, uh, which seems like kind of a trivial uh, focus. But in fact, as is often the case, uh, it is these trivial matters that most clearly set out um, some, some concepts, some, some principles, which then get applied to much less trivial matters. And so uh, the, the Trinity case was about playgrounds, but it was also about parents, okay? And the place of parents, the authority that parents have in the lives of their children. It was about education, which I've already alluded to. And ultimately, for our purposes, it's about the gospel and our ability to proclaim it and the ability of the gospel to be heard. Um, you know, I wonder what, what we would do if, when we stepped into our pulpits next Sunday, if we saw uh, two-thirds or three-fourths of the people sitting in front of you with earplugs in their ears, obvious earplugs. 
so that you could preach you know, the most wonderful uh, gospel-centered law gospel sermon that there ever was, but they literally could not hear it. Okay? In, in essence, that is the situation that we face, not because, of course, they have a physical impediment to, to hearing it, but because they have been inculcated with a worldview that does not allow them to hear what you're preaching, uh, does not allow it to, to penetrate uh, their worldview. That's what this is all about. Uh, allowing parents to be able to, to uh, educate their kids so that they can hear the preached gospel. Okay? All right, so one way of wrapping all of this together uh, is to say that this is all about parental choice in education. Now, um, because this case focused on a school, actually a, a preschool, uh, and because some of the, the arguments about it revolved around uh, education on different levels, the, the temptation is to say, well, this is all about education. Well, it's not. Uh, it, it is about uh, religious freedom uh, as it applies not just to, to schools but to our congregations as well. And in fact, the first practical application of this new ruling had nothing to do with schools, but rather the um, churches uh, themselves, congregations. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay, so why place so much emphasis on uh, parents? Well, uh, as is pretty obvious, uh, parents are in fact the first and the primary educator of their children. In years past, that would have been a very uncontroversial statement. These days, it is controversial. Um, in, in years past, um, we, we would, everyone would have understood that, uh, that educators, professional educators, have, uh, have the, uh, possess the, the calling or the, the right to teach your children because they would have received that from the parent, okay? The parent, they, they have a, a, um, an authority to teach only because it's delegated by the parent. And in fact, uh, in years past, we always uh, crystallized that idea in this Latin phrase, in loco parentis. I remember when I was a kid in school, I heard that phrase with some regularity. And even as a kid, I, I grasp it. it. It says that teachers stand in place of, in local, locus, of the parent, okay? Um, that's being challenged very directly, and I'll tell you about a case that just came up about uh, two, three weeks ago that demonstrates that in a little bit. Uh, also, parents are, are important because they have a, a unique, occupy a unique position where they can take into account the wide number of factors that have, have to be considered before uh, it can be determined what the best kind of education is for a, a particular child. Uh, the state can, can assess some of those things, but, parent, but there are things that parents alone are capable of, of um, factoring in. And then, of course, there, there's the simple fact that which sociologists these days, everybody... 
uh, whether they hail from the right side or the left side of the political spectrum, every sociologist these days will, will clearly stipulate that it is the, the, the strength of the family uh, and the, the place of parents uh, that ultimately uh, produce a, a, a stronger or a weaker society. Okay? If parents do not parent well, families do not function well, and societies do not function well. So, okay, so uh, because this is uh, to a large degree, at least in the short term, about education, uh, we should probably talk a little bit about uh, what in fact education is or what its goals are. You know, how do you know when you have been well-educated? How do you know if you have received a good education? Well, a lot of people will say, well, you've been received a good education if, in the end, you produce good workers. If the product of the educational process can fit into the uh, economic engine, if they can hold down a job and be productive in the economy, then they have been well-educated. And I, for one, will not argue with that. That, that is an important uh, function of education. Um, others will say, well, uh, that there's an, another uh, goal to be had in education, and that is to produce uh, good citizens. Particularly in a democracy, uh, you can't uh, maintain that democracy in, in any kind of a healthy form unless people are well-educated, okay? So uh, these two things are the, the things that you will hear about most often in the, let's say, the secular media. Uh, when, when they want to assess, is education in the United States going well or not, they will focus on these two things, and usually it's on the first. You know, are people capable, are students capable of, of uh, entering the job market and, and functioning well? And in fact, these two things, producing good workers and, and good citizens, these are two legitimate uh, interests that government has in education. They are the only two interests, legitimate interests that government has. But we don't want to uh, be dismissive of that. It is important. However, uh, education is a whole lot more than just producing good workers and good citizens. One of the ways of, of conceiving of what a good education is, uh, is to, to use this, um, this metaphor, this um, um, construct. Uh, education could be described as a process by which a child's world is framed, okay? Now, um, okay, here we've got a good example. Uh, you got a great big wall, okay? Nice slate gray wall. Uh, there's a picture on that wall, but that picture would, would pretty much get lost there if it did not have a frame around it. A frame gives it definition. It calls our attention to what's inside of it. It tells you that what's inside of it is the important thing and not what's around it. So an education also is that process by which we uh, we um, help children understand, first of all, what's real and what isn't, and what is important and what is not. But then there are a whole lot of other things too. Education 
uh, ultimately leads somebody to understand whether there is such a thing as purpose in life. Okay? Does your life have a purpose? Okay? When, when that is unanswered or when the answer is no, I have no purpose, then what happens? What's happened in the last roughly five years? The suicide rate has risen dramatically. I don't know if you've seen recent uh, news stories on that, but it's, it's quite uh, shocking what's happened. That, among other reasons, has to do with whether people have a sense of purpose or not. Uh, education also will help uh, students understand or answer the question, is uh, life, is the, the world as a whole, is it something uh, that is designed or is it something that has occurred by accident? Is it just a, a, a chaotic uh, process that has produced you know, these wonderful things called bodies and you know, everything else around us? Um, an education will help to determine whether there is such a thing as good and bad or not, whether there is such a thing as right and wrong, whether the, there, the universe is just made of physical stuff or if there was more. It will help uh, answer the question, what is a human person? Are we, in fact, just physical stuff? That's what materialism tells us, okay? And that's what uh, kids have been uh, fed, a steady diet of that uh, for generations now. Uh, and we wonder uh, why we're having trouble, you know, with people coming and attending church at all or regularly. Okay, because they're carrying this in their head that the, the only real stuff in the world is physical stuff. And you, pastors, are up there yapping away about some other stuff, which as far as they're concerned is just fantasy. Okay? Um, are we composed of body and soul? Uh, and if so, are they both necessary? Or is one more important than the other? Sometimes we, we use, instead of the word soul, we'll use spirit, okay? That's more acceptable to a, a secular uh, hearer. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what is the real you, the real person? Are you this uh, in, integrated body and soul? Or are you primarily just a spirit? And your body is just this, this shell, uh, in which your spirit dwells for a period of time. But the body is really very dispensable. Okay? That's, we've seen the outworking of that uh, in same-sex marriage, in transgenderism, um, in all of these, new, these novelties. What they all uh, have in common is the commitment that the body is essentially meaningless. The real you is your spirit. Okay, And until we begin to understand that that's what people are now carrying in their head, that the body is a, an essentially meaningless thing, first of all, it makes the resurrection, the bodily resurrection from the dead, uh, seem, again, to be kind of fantastical uh, and, and be dismissed. And it means that they have no expectation that they too will be bodily raised from the dead. All of these things uh, are, are 
dependent on the kind of uh, worldview that people hold, and that worldview comes from their education. Okay? And then finally, from our point of view, ultimately, um, is God um, inside the frame of reality or outside? Okay? That's critical. Education is going to answer that question. In fact, every educational system uh, does ans answer, ask and answer each of those questions. Okay? It, it's not like you can have an educational program that, that just avoids those. They may want to claim that, but uh, that, that you can't have an education without addressing those fundamental issues. All right, so then the question becomes, well, who gets to decide which the correct answers are? Are we just physical material, or do we have a soul? If we have both, which is more important? Are they both necessary, or can we look at the body, the, the physical stuff, as being inferior? Okay, Many of you, of course, will recognize this as the old Gnostic um, heresies. But they're, they're back with a vengeance of course, in our day and age. So, who gets to decide on the, the correct answers and who will deliver those answers to your kids? Because very often, it's not just the content, it's the one uh, uh, delivering the content that is critical as well. Well, in the, in, uh, across history, there have always been two primary candidates to, for the who here. Okay? Either... Parents are the ones who decide which the correct answers are and decide who will deliver those answers to their kids, or who else? The state, of course. Uh, now, if you go far enough back in history, of course, back to the Greek city-states and so forth, there you had some examples of where the state literally did claim authority over the child, ownership over the child. You know, practically from the time they were weaned, they were removed from the parents and placed into a, a, a system, a state-sponsored system that would form those children into what they felt was the best citizen that they could. Okay? Um, in, in more recent times, especially here in the United States, we have never felt that the state was particularly intrusive on that count uh, until recently. Uh, and that is changing very, very quickly. In fact, um, back in February of this year in the state of Ohio, I don't know if any of you heard about the, uh, the parents uh, who had a, a middle-aged teenager uh, who claimed to be transgender. Uh, the uh, parents uh, refused to allow the child to enter into the, the typical um, regiment of uh, puberty blockers and then uh, surgical uh, transitioning from one to the other. Uh, the parents felt, not just on religious grounds, but on scientific grounds, that this was uh, very dangerous and something that they would not consent to. That child and friends uh, took that to the, to the courts, and what happened this last February is that the courts removed that child from the home and gave the custody to, uh, in that, this case it was um, 
grandparents, but the key thing is uh, gave that custody to people who would allow that, uh, that transitioning to, to take place. Even though, again, on, a scientific, on scientific grounds, there, was, there is no uh, reason that, that you should allow that kind of uh, wild uh, experimentation on people, because that's what it is you know, at this point. Uh, so at any rate, uh, the state now has in fact stepped up and uh, begun this process of literally taking control, charge of children, taking them away from parents if they hold the wrong worldview, and uh, welcome to the new world that we're in. Okay, so the question, who's going to be in charge, parents or the state? There is hardly a more critical question to ask. And when we have uh, critical questions like this in our culture, there's always one place we go to get an answer, right? Unfortunately, it's not the Bible, okay? In, at least in our civic world, we go to the Supreme Court, okay? We have given them that power. Whether we should have or not, we in effect have. And so the question has come before the Supreme Court, not just once, but several times, and it has consistently answered that question of who is the primary authority in the life of children. And what have they said? They have said again and again and again uh, that, in fact, parents are that authority. Parents are the deciders when it comes uh, to the life of their children. Uh, the, the clearest case where that is expressed, came from uh, a case back in 1925 uh, out of the uh, state of Oregon. Uh, it's called Pierce versus the Society of Sisters. Um, back in, in the early 20s, uh, Oregon politics was dominated by a particular uh, group of people, a particular ideology. Uh, and I think you'll be a little shocked to find out who that group is. It's the Ku Klux Klan. They, they had great sway in Oregon back in the early 20s, and they persuaded the, the state legislature to pass and the governor to sign a bill which um, said that if parents send their child to anything other than a government-run school, uh, parents would be fined and they would be jailed. Okay? You may not step outside the bounds of an officially prescribed, government-prescribed education. Well, needless to say, that was upsetting to some people, so they uh, uh, instituted a, a suit, a lawsuit. It worked its way up through the courts, and in 1925, the Supreme Court said, uh, the child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny, by that they mean parents, have the right coupled with the high duty to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations. Now that phrase, additional obligations, that sounds kind of squishy, okay? But what they meant by that was that whole list of things that education is supposed to accomplish. You know, does life have purpose? Does it have meaning? You know, are we just material creatures or is there, you know, all of those things. Here the court clearly says that the state is not competent to make those decisions. Parents alone are. 
Okay? It's just as crystal clear as, as you could hope to have. And this is way back in, in 1925. So, okay, uh, if parents, in fact, are the deciders, then one of the questions that immediately surfaces is, well, what do they have uh, to decide between? What kinds of different schooling um, settings are there? Well, back in 1925, there probably was only two. You had your, your local district government-run school, and maybe you had a, a religious school. Catholic might have been a... LCMS school, but those were pretty much your only choices. Uh, these days, that, that universe of choice has expanded considerably. So now we have not only the traditional government-run, uh, what we typically call uh, public schools, which is a misnomer, uh, uh, which I'll talk about in just a little bit. Uh, but now we have these things called charter schools, which are kind of quasi-governmental, but also uh, where parents have much more influence. Uh, we have online schools, religious schools, as we all have had for a long time, uh, independent private schools, the, the Blakes and Brecks uh, of the world, those kinds of things. And of course, homeschooling uh, has become quite popular. Uh, somewhere between three and five percent of all students now are schooled at home. That you know, has exploded uh, over the last 20, 25 years. And, and this is not an exhaustive list either. There are other educational options as well. So when you ask parents, you know, if, if you had your druthers, if you were, there was nothing holding you back, what kind of uh, school would you prefer your child or children attend? And consistently, over many years, uh, many different polls by many different polling organizations, consistently you find out that about 55% of parents say they would choose something other than the local district public school. Which, of course, means that 45% would still choose that, okay? And that's not insignificant. But you, you have a clear majority that would choose something else. Um, so that then leads us to a mystery of sorts. If, in fact, parents are the deciders when it comes to the educational lives of their kids, and 55% of those parents say that they would choose something other than a traditional uh, public school, then why do only 15% attend something other than a uh, traditional public school. There is a gap there of 40% of parents who say, I really would like something other than a traditional public, but for some reason, I am still choosing a traditional public school. Okay? So that, that's not a, an insignificant percentage of, of parents. Now, you know, are there some reasons that parents would still ultimately choose something that is not their first choice? Yeah, and, and they're pretty good reasons. Uh, geography certainly is one of them. Um, I may want to send my child to a, uh, a, a Lutheran LCMS elementary school, but if I live out in the middle of Wyoming, the nearest one may be 200 miles away. Not gonna happen, okay? Not without some really heroic 
extreme measures being taken. Or uh, there are other reasons too. Um, I don't know that it's as true in, in a metro setting uh, as it is elsewhere, but certainly out in smaller towns, uh, there is a great deal of social pressure brought to bear on parents to fall in line and essentially um, stipulate that they are full members of the community. And if you choose something other than the local public school, which they equate with the community, uh, you have become a suspect person. And that gets communicated to parents in many and various ways, some subtle, not, some not so subtle. Um, and ultimately, it's enough to, to dissuade many parents, and ultimately they send their child to the, the big public school. Okay? So those are two reasons that we can understand. Um, but there is a third reason, and this is one that is not so easy to understand, and in fact, uh, we would contend uh, flies uh, it is in fact illegal, unconstitutional, or at least so we have contended over the years. Now, in order to understand how that could be the case, you first have to step back a little bit and uh, try to grasp what is the the arrangement that we have had, the social contract that we've had in this country with respect to education. Well, I would contend that this is kind of a good overview of it. First of all, we say that uh, we all benefit by having all of our kids educated. Okay? We describe that as a common good. I don't think you'll find many people that would argue against that. Then we go on to say, because it is a common good, we all agree to be taxed to pay for this common good for all our kids. Okay? We may not like paying our taxes, but we understand that, that it's important that we do, and ultimately we do write the check or whatever. Okay, that taxing then allows us to pay for what we might call a good basic education for every child at no cost to parents, or essentially no cost. Okay, um, good basic education. That's not a, a black, brick education. That's not a, uh, you know, elite kind of thing. Uh, but it's a good one. Okay? It produces good workers, good citizens, etc. All right, and then finally, the money to pay for this good basic level of education will follow the child to the school of the parents' choosing. Now we start to get into something that is a little more controversial, or at least it was. You know, uh, I think you all all know that um, the, the charter school movement in the United States began right here in Minnesota. It's a little over 25 years old now. Before that movement, it would have been conceivable, and in fact, many people did argue and said, no, the dollars cannot follow the child. They must go to the local public school district in which you reside, period. Okay, and they would back that up by saying, well, we're all a big melting pot, and unless all the kids go through the same uh, regimented form of education, we can't be a unified community or culture. Okay? Well, 
hard to say that that isn't true because there was no other choice. Then came the charter school movement and all of a sudden, the dollars did start to follow the child. Sometimes even outside of the, uh, the public school district lines. Then came uh, inter-district uh, competition and again, dollars follow the child. The, okay, the precedent is now set, it's clear that this is true. And in fact, it continues to be the case except for, maybe you noticed there were some asterisks down at the bottom there, except for one category of parents and students. Okay, they, that one category does not qualify. Everybody else does. And who is that one category? Well, it's the parents who desire and choose an education in a religious setting. Any other setting is fine. You can start a charter school and, and, and uh, get students who's, who will bring with them their state dollars. Uh, you can uh, organize that charter school around uh, languages. You can organize it around STEM. You can organize it around certain cultural things, around ethnic identities. Anything is fine with the state except a religious theme. Now, why is that? Does the state make this one exception because they have found that religious schools produce inferior products? Do religious schools produce uh, less fit workers or not as competent citizens? Is that what we have found? No, of course not. And in fact, when you look at all the studies, and there have been many, it makes a strong case the other way. That's not our, our reason for the conversation today. We, it is sufficient to say that, that they do at least as good a job as a local public school district does. All right, so then, does the government have the, the may they just prefer to have uh, people schooled non-religiously. May the government just prefer to have non-religious people uh, and therefore a non-religious society. Is that okay? Well, my guess is you would find a lot of people who would say emphatically, yes, that is okay. In fact, the government must do that. The government must have that preference. And very quickly out of their mouth will come the phrase, the separation of church and state. And in uttering that phrase, they, have think, they think they have made a conclusive argument, which, uh, which means they don't have to give any other justification for the government excluding this one group of people, okay? So the question is, does the idea of the separation of church and state, does it really mean that? Well, first of all, of course, we have to remember that that phrase and that concept is not part of our official governing documents, right? Not part of our Constitution, not part of the uh, Declaration of Independence or anything else. Do you remember where it came from? A letter Thomas Jefferson wrote to, above all people, some Baptist pastors 
in Connecticut who were concerned that the church, as the, the government was taking shape, were concerned that the church was going to get frozen out of um, uh, influence in, in the, this new culture, this new society that was forming. And uh, Jefferson wrote this letter and used that phrase to assure the pastors that, oh no, uh, they would be able to operate uh, freely, uh, that they would have every bit as much influence as the, everybody felt they should have. Don't worry about it. Well, of course, the phrase over the years has been just stood on its head so that it now means exactly the opposite of what uh, Jefferson intended it to mean. Uh, and, it, and it entered into the legal system back in 1947 with a Supreme Court case called uh, Everson. And since that time, it has taken on these mythic qualities where all you have to do is say this and all of a sudden the secular voice in the conversation wins, period. Okay? So, uh, but we've never had anything to challenge that with in, in a legal vein. Okay, well, speaking of legal veins, you know, our, our, our legalities, our, our legal system is based, of course, on our, ultimately, on our Constitution. So the question is, what does the Constitution have to say about this? Can the government treat educational choices of some parents differently simply because their choice is a religious one? Okay, does the Constitution speak to that? Well, yes, it does. And it shouts at us, no, you may not treat those decisions of some parents different than others. You must, in fact, treat everyone, both religious and non-religious, the same. Okay, it's the, uh, that neutrality concept, which comes as a surprise to us. No, we all assume that that's the way it is and the way it's supposed to be. And it in fact is in most areas of our life, but not in this one, okay? This is a big exception. Okay, so what, what is the problem here? Why have we allowed this exception to exist in our public life? Well, <clears throat> the, it exists, uh, we, we have this problem because the government has found itself somehow, and we don't have to worry about how we got there, but the government self finds itself in a conflict of interest situation because the government is not just the collector and the dispenser of these dollars for a good basic education for all our kids, but because they are the primary provider of education, they therefore become the primary recipient of those dollars. What does this, there's a word that describes this Situation. What is it? You all know it. It's called a monopoly. And in every area of our public life, whenever a monopolistic circumstance has uh, developed, we as a culture have said, that is bad for us. Okay? Because monopolies always do two things. What happens to the price of whatever is monopolized? It goes up. What happens to the quality of whatever is monopolized? It goes down. Just as sure as the sun rises in the east, that's what happens in a monopoly. 
Conversely, when you, when you break up the monopoly, when you introduce competition, what happens? Price goes down and quality goes up. Again, this is not controversial. It's been proven many times. So back in the, I think, 20s, when Standard Oil had developed its monopoly to its zenith, even with all their power, economic power, political power, the government still broke them up. Okay, they broke up the trust, the, the monopoly. The same thing happened back in the 70s with uh, AT&T, communication monopoly. And I would suggest that we're seeing the initial stages of that in the, um, uh, in the internet, uh, the domination of, of that part of our life, which is now essentially monopolized between three or four major players. And, but each one of them takes a specific slice. So really, it's only one player uh, you know, that controls search engines and, and whatnot. Uh, so, uh, it, again, it's pretty well settled that when mo monopolies come into being, uh, they are not healthy for us as a society, and we should do something to uh, diminish their, um, their influence. Okay, so how could that be applied in, a, in the case of education? Well, the government could theoretically stop being a provider. We've been at this for you know, 150 years, not gonna happen, okay? The, bu the buildings belong to the local public school district, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's deeply ingrained in our, uh, our culture. So that's not gonna change. But are there some things that we could do to eliminate or lessen the degree of conflict of interest, lessen the, the monopolistic tendencies? And the answer is yes. And in fact, here we have a pretty good idea now of, of how you would go about doing that. <clears throat> Anytime you have a, a, a limited resource, um, you, you have fights develop over that. So for example, uh, place yourself in your home. Uh, I don't know how many kids you have, but let's say you have two, uh, you have, uh, Billy and you have Sally, uh, but you only have one cupcake. Okay, trouble. So what are you gonna do? Uh, well, you could deny it to both of them, of course. That's not gonna go over very big. Uh, or you could uh, conceivably hand a, a knife to Billy and say, Billy, here, uh, you, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, let's make it Dick. <laughs> Dick, you, you cut the cupcake and then choose which half you'd like, and Sally, you can have what's left. Well, you know what happens, particularly if that scenario is replayed over and over again. Pretty soon, uh, Dick uh, understands that he does not have to cut it just down the middle because he gets the first choice. Sally's going to get whatever's left. Okay, this is a recipe for domestic chaos and certainly not tranquility. So the other option, of course, is to hand Dick the knife, say, cut it in half, and then, Sally, you get the first choice, and then, magically, the cupcake gets cut right in the middle. And in fact, domestic tranquility rules. Life is good. Well, something like that would, would take place 
with respect to education. So that now the government, who, who still collects the dollars and determines how much they can afford to spend on a good basic education for all our kids, they still do that. But now parents get to select which school the child attends, the dollars follow that child, and there are no limitations. As long as those schools produce good workers and good citizens, the government has no interest whatsoever in what school the parent chooses. Okay? It's a simple solution. It has not been simple in practice to uh, put that into place. But the fact of the matter is we're, we're already doing this. Uh, not just with charter schools, uh, but with the PSEO, the post-secondary options. Uh, kids who are juniors or seniors in high school can take their full allotment of dollars and go to uh, any post-secondary school, university, including religious schools. There's, there are no limitations there. Um, so we're already doing it on that count. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, between public school districts, same thing. As long as there's room for your child in a specific place, the state is, is not upset by that. Okay, so what does the Constitution say then? Uh, does it in fact say that this is wrong, that it is unconstitutional? Well, even though it, it seems pretty obvious that it was not right, that it, it was not a neutral way of approaching religious versus non-religious citizens. It was not until last summer, in the case of Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, that the court clearly said, this is not constitutionally acceptable, okay? And in fact, it was what we typically call a landmark decision. Now, just real, real briefly, when you get into conversations about constitutions and legalities, uh, in this field at least, uh, you're going to focus primarily on the uh, First Amendment of the Constitution, specifically the religion clauses, one called the Establishment Clause and the other the Free Exercise Clause. And then you tend to focus also on state constitutions, <clears throat> in particular um, uh, clauses that exist there, which are very often called Blaine amendments. Very quickly, establishment clause essentially says that the government may not prefer or establish uh, a, a particular religion. Not that it can't uh, prefer religions or, or, or even treat them neutrally, just you can't pick a favorite. The free exercise clause simply says that you have to allow each citizen to, to freely exercise their faith unless it causes some uh, extreme harm to society or to other citizens. The government has no right to restrict that. And then there are these state um, constitution amendments, Blaine amendments, which essentially say uh, the state constitution uh, they ban the use of any public funds in support of what are called sectarian private schools. Now, there are about 38 states that have these clauses. Minnesota is one of them. Um, and what, what's key here is to understand what is meant by the word sectarian. Um, these days, 
we would tend to translate that word uh, maybe just religious. Uh, but in fact, when these amendments were placed into, these, into the Constitution, sectarian had a much more specific meaning. It meant Catholic, okay? Because at the time these amendments uh, were introduced, which was the middle 1800s, 1850, 60, 70, um, the, the Catholic Church um, was objecting to the fact that, that public schools were, in essence, Protestant schools. They taught the Bible, they read the Bible, there were prayers, and they were consistently Protestant in nature. Needless to say, Catholic parents objected to that, and they initially asked, well, we want our share of the money, we want our, the, the amount of a good basic education to be able to follow our kids to a Catholic school. A very reasonable request. However, it was not reasonable to the Protestants that controlled government. And so these amendments were placed in the constitutions to prevent that. Um, one interesting twist here, uh, as is often the case, these were not this was not an idea that was clearly thought out and, and clearly and transparently discussed. In fact, the vast majority of the states that have this, including Minnesota, were essentially forced to have an amendment like this or they would not be allowed into the union. So, uh, so much for this being a democratically uh, uh, thought through and introduced idea. It was not at all. But they exist. And for the last, well, 100 years in particular, 120, 30 years, these have been the primary things which have prevented uh, uh, dollars from following students to uh, religious schools. All right, so now along comes the Trinity Lutheran case. Oh my goodness, we're late. Well, um, the Trinity Lutheran case, uh, our congregation in Columbia, Missouri, uh, what are the facts? Well, as, as I said, it had to do with playgrounds. Uh, their preschool had a playground. On the playground, the cushioning material underneath neath the uh, swings and jungle gyms and so forth was a, a P-Rock, uh, which at one time might have been an acceptable cushioner, but uh, it doesn't cushion very much. <clears throat> and so uh, the state of uh, Missouri uh, introduced a program where it improved two, two qualities of public life. First of all, uh, they... Uh, they found that if they took old tires and ground them up and mixed a, an adhesive with them, they could produce a nice cushion material that was excellent uh, for cushioning falls of kids. Uh, and it kept these tires from going into the public landfills, which were uh, filling up and it was a problem. So they introduced this um, program whereby uh, any nonprofit in the state could apply to receive a grant to put this new material down. Trinity Lutheran Church and School uh, made that application. Um, they, they actually went to the government and said, can we really apply for this? And they said, yes, you may. You're a nonprofit. Um, and they, they made the application following the, the selection criteria. They scored very highly. They scored number five uh, out of the 40 that applied. They actually funded 15 of these grants at about 
$20,000 a piece. Uh, and it was at that point that somebody in state government said, oh, we made a mistake. We have a Blaine Amendment in our Constitution. You can't be a receiver of this. In fact, we should not even have allowed you to apply. Well, that was not just a disappointment to the con uh, congregation, but uh, they said, this isn't right. Uh, our, our constitutional rights seem to have been violated here. So there was a, a lawsuit instituted uh, primarily under the auspices of ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom. And if you don't know that group, you should. They are our greatest defenders. Uh, we need to support them uh, enthusiastically. Uh, but under their auspices, this uh, case made its way through the courts. And back last June, uh, there was a 7-2 decision, a strong decision, based both on the numbers, 7-2, and on the language that was used. And so the, the question they were answering was essentially, can you uh, isolate uh, one class of citizens and deny them a benefit that every other class of citizens gets when that, that the basis for that is religion? Okay. That's the question. Well, by a 7-2 margin, the court said, in using the Missouri Blaine Amendment to deny Trinity Lutheran the opportunity even to compete for what they call a neutral public benefit, that means something that everybody is eligible for, uh, the state of Missouri has violated the free exercise clause of the United States Constitution. This, my friends, is a big deal, a really big deal, okay? Um, the court went on to say, well, here's the logic. When a st state creates a neutral benefit program, that is a, a program intended to benefit everybody, it cannot show favoritism, either for secular or religious recipients. You have to treat them the same. Chief Justice Roberts kind of crystallized the whole thing when he said, to deny benefits to religious citizens that are offered to all other citizens simply because they are religious is odious to our Constitution and cannot stand. That is strong language. In fact, if I had my druthers, I'd have every one of our churches have the Ladies Guild crochet this, needlepoint it, and put it on our walls because we've been waiting 150 years to hear words like this. Even though it's quite clear from the Constitution that that is the case, this is the first time that it was spoken by the Supreme Court. Big time deal. That's correct. There are still um, forces uh, invested uh, interests that, that don't want to allow that this kind of uh, equal treatment. But still, 7-2 is, is pretty strong. All right, so why was it a landmark decision? Well, first of all, because this is the first time that it was, uh, they relied on the free exercise clause. All the other school choice 
questions that have been answered over the last 20, 30 years have always asked the question, what may the government do? May the government help this particular school and not violate the, the establishment clause? They never ask the question, can we not grant this privilege because it might violate the, the free exercise clause? This is the first time we relied on this part of the Constitution. And when we did, the outcome was very good. Okay, now, not only may the government allow dollars to flow to religious schools for playgrounds, it must allow it. If you allow all uh, nonprofit organizations to compete for this, you can't single out religious nonprofits and say they're different. And now, not only must the government play, pay for the cost of playgrounds, it must also pay for the cost of the education that goes on in the building, because that too is a neutral benefit program, something intended for all our kids. Now, you notice there are a couple of question marks there. Because the court, in this Trinity Lutheran ruling, stopped just a little bit short of saying that this basic idea, therefore, must apply to religious schools, and what goes on inside the school building. They, in effect, spoke to it uh, by, um, at the time this ruling was rendered, there were two other cases that the court was essentially holding in its back pocket, uh, in which the question was, uh, may the government or must the government allow tuition dollars or dollars to flow to the schools? And as soon as they rendered <clears throat> this decision, the Supreme Court the very next day sent those two other cases back to the states who had said essentially uh, separation of church and state means uh, some people don't get their fair share. The, the Supreme Court sent it back and said, Rethink that in light of what we just said in this ruling. Well, it's a long story, but those two cases, which would have swept in probably the next uh, Supreme Court session and, and clarified this absolutely, they got sidetracked. Long story, sad story, political influence, money influence, all that kind of stuff. But, so we're still waiting for that follow-up Supreme Court case, which will absolutely, clearly identify the, the current uh, restrictions as being unconstitutional. But it, that's coming, okay? Okay, so Trinity uh, strongly suggests that the public funding of education, and not just playgrounds, is such a neutral program. No longer does public education mean the same as public schools. They are, you can't, the, the universe of, of schools that educate for the public good is larger than just your local public school district or even uh, public school districts plus charters, okay? The universe includes our religious schools. We educate for the public good just as much as uh, the local public school district, okay? Uh, and secondly, no longer can, can you imply that just because the government is secular in nature, for which we should all give great thanks, uh, but that does not mean that, that we must have a secular society. 
We have been very confused about that for a long time. Okay? This case helps clarify that. Okay, so in the end, uh, no longer may citizens, religious citizens, be treated as second class, that is, denied some benefit that everybody else gets. No longer does separation of church and state, no longer is that an example of neutrality. The court clearly said that is an act of hostility toward religion. Uh, no longer do religious parents have to, quote, pay a price that no one else has to pay when making educational decisions. And, very important, now parents and schools decide whether to accept government-collected funds. The government does not get to decide whether to offer them. Constitutionally, the government must offer it to everybody. If you decide, as a let's say a Lutheran grade school, that there is still too much danger in accepting those dollars, even though they're run through the parent, you can deny them. You, you don't have to accept them. The government, on the other hand, may not say, I won't offer them to you. Okay? Just a fundamental change has, has happened here. And finally, for our purposes as the church, Allowing funds to flow to religious schools like every other school, uh, the government will no longer give the impression that God lies outside the frame of reality. Because that, in essence, is what the government is teaching every child in its system. Where for 12 years, the most important thing in our life is ignored. That is a powerful statement. And it has dramatic results, okay? And I think we have seen those results in uh, the, the empty pews that, that you see on Sunday morning. Okay, as a result of this, parents will be returned to their proper status as the primary authority of the child. All schools, public and private, will now become accountable to parents this is good news, not just for parochial schools. It is good news for every school, every public school, because it is no longer beholden to uh, the legislators in St. Paul, but rather beholden to, accountable to parents. That's a good thing for all of us. Regardless of whether you ultimately choose a public school education or a, a religious school education, this gets the order straight again and puts parents... Uh, back where they should have been all along. And all this will happen if our education funding is brought into line with our Constitution. Okay? Just because a court says something, you know, doesn't mean it. <clears throat> the court doesn't have control of the IRS. The court doesn't have control of standing armies or anything like that to enforce its rulings. That needs to be worked out politically. And that's where we're at right now. And so, uh, that now is the point where we come into the picture because we have to first understand what has happened and we now have to become willing to talk to our neighbors about it, talk to our, our legislators about it. We need to be willing to engage confidently in the political process that will bring this to the right uh, political end. Um, and in the end, will no longer be allowing the government to hold uh, a veto power 
over at least the vast majority of parents who economically cannot afford to make another choice. Uh, you're, you're giving parents uh, an unbiased choice, which they should have had all along. For us, why is this important? Why, are, why am I, as your representative, involved in this? Well, it is ultimately for the sake of the gospel. To remove this barrier to faith which is created when God is being treated consistently as being outside the frame of reality. And of course, uh, a biblical warrant for this probably find no better than the great Shema where we are called to invest daily, consistently with our children uh, and reflect our understanding of the world and, uh, and our God. So, uh, I thank you for your kind attention, and I know I've you know, run longer than I should have, uh, but I, I think it's important. So we thank Pastor Hintz for uh, making this presentation and, and uh, having it recorded so that we can share it with people in our district. I think it's really important that we're all aware of what's happening in government and in our uh, kind of in our broader culture and society. Um, this ruling, other rulings that are coming up this summer are going to have an impact on our work as the church here in America, and it's good to be aware of them. So um, feel free to contact him at fred.hints at mnsdistrict.org if you want to have him speak to your congregation in a Bible study or in some other group. Uh, he'd love to share with you. Thanks for listening to Cultivating Leaders and have a great day.